0: Today's lesson is the futility of idolatry and the background passage for this lesson is Isaiah chapter 44 through 46. Isaiah prophesied during a relatively good time for the southern kingdom of Judah, but the northern kingdom of Israel was in its death spiral leading to their eventual fall to Assyria. Still, idolatry remained a struggle for both kingdoms in varying degrees, until both met their demise in exile at God's punishment. One place Isaiah addressed this issue was a portion of his prophetic book aimed ahead to a time after the people had been departed, deported actually to pagan lands. Through Isaiah, the Lord made the case that idols, were their local or abroad were nothing but a dead distraction from the one true God. With Isaiah's fierce and direct ridicule of idolatry in the following passages, God's people were faced with a major decision. They could continue to seek idols as the object of their worship and walk in disobedience to God, or they could see the emptiness of of idolatry and turn back To obey the Lord. This decision could not be taken lightly. Yet many were blind to the wicked ways of their sin. Only the work of the Lord would turn them back. The first point of this lesson is that idolatry begins by rejecting God. We find this in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 1 through 6. And now listen, Jacob, my servant. Israel, whom I have chosen, this is the word of the Lord your maker, the one who formed you from the womb. He will help you. Do not fear, Jacob my servant, Deshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will sprout among the grass like poplars by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will use the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and take on the name of Israel. This is what the Lord, the King of Israel, and its Redeemer, the Lord of armies, says. I am the first, and I am the last. There is no God but me. Now, it's important for us to understand what the term Jeshurun means. It's a poetic name for Israel, meaning upright. From Jacob the supplanter, to Israel the fighter-struggler, to Jeshurun the upright, God's chosen people, will eventually be who he intended them to be. Morally upright people who will faithfully follow him. Through his prophet Isaiah, God told his people that they'd rebelled against me, so I defiled the officers of the sanctuary and set Jacob apart for destruction and Israel for scorn. Because of Israel's idolatry and rebellion, God pronounced judgment on them. But because they were his covenant people, whenever God pronounced judgment, he also provided a way of redemption through his grace. In Isaiah chapter 44 verse 1, God called out Israel as the one whom I have chosen. The Lord had not completely rejected Israel. He still called them his own and did not abandon them. After declaring the nature of his relationship status with Israel, he further declared that he was also their creator. He had made them from the womb. He further declared that he was... He, he, from the very beginning, God had been present and active in the lives of the Israelites. God also reminded Israel that he was their helper and that they had no reason to fear. Even though they had rejected God for a time, he reiterated that he had chosen them. God graciously promised to continue to provide for the physical and spiritual thirst of his people. He would pour water on the land and pour his spirit on future generations. They would grow in number, sprouting like poplars, as people aligned and identified themselves with the Lord. Whether this meant Israelites becoming fully devoted to God, or Gentiles actually turning to God, or more likely, it's both. The Lord would increase their numbers, and He would be their God. They would belong to Him, sealed with His name. This is possible because of the pouring out of God's Spirit. Next, God declared through Isaiah who He, who he is, is in explicit terms. Verse six reveals seven different titles and characteristics about God. First, Isaiah described God as the Lord. In Hebrew, this name Yahweh, written out as written out as, which is Y H W H. Which actually is written out as Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H. This name holds a holy weight. The name Yahweh is different to translate, difficult really to translate, rather roughly stated, Yahweh means I am who I am. So the Lord is the I am, the covenant God, foundational for all existence. Second Isaiah called God the King of Israel. Later, the title King of the Jews would be used to mock Jesus. But here this was a statement of who was actually in charge of Israel and who ruled and reigned over them. Third, he called the the Lord Israel's Redeemer. God brought Israel out of Egypt and one day God would bring them out of their future exile as well. This was a promise of what was to come. The final Redeemer, Jesus, will come not only to redeem Israel, but all the peoples of the world. Fourth, Isaiah called God Lord of Armies. God holds all the power in heaven and on earth and commands his armies to do his bidding at any point. The strength and authority he has is actually unmatched. Fifth, God described himself as the first. This means that everything had its beginning in God. There was no beginning for God, for, but all beginnings are from God. He is forever and first. Sixth, He is the last. God is eternal and the end of all things. Nothing will outlast God, and nothing can live eternally apart from Him. There is no end for those who find themselves in God because he is the end. Seventh, there is no God but me. This is the ultimate statement God makes to declare that he is undoubtedly the only God. Beyond that, there are no other gods apart from him. The question for Israel then was whether they would continue in idolatry, giving their honor and attention to worthless idols, Or would they recognize Yahweh as the only true God? Unfortunately, they chose idols. Though God comforted the Israelites in telling them that they were his chosen people, he reminded them emphatically who he is, the only true God. All those who worship other gods and their idols will be put to shame. Idolatry is senseless, purposeless, and futile in all respects. The second point of this lesson is that idolatry leads to futile religion. We find this in Isaiah chapter 44 verses 7 through 11. Who like me can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me since I have established an ancient people. Let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. Do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God but me? There is no other rock. I do not know any. All who make idols are nothing, and what they treasure benefits no one. Their witnesses do not see or know anything, so they will be put to shame. Who makes a God or casts a metal image that benefits no one? Look, all its worshippers will be put to shame and the craftsmen are humans. They all will assemble and stand. They all will be startled and put to shame. When God poses a question, he already knows the answer, so there must be still some value in asking for our sake. Here God asks, Who, like me, can announce the future? God is all-knowing, so he can declare the coming things. He had already proven this divine ability to the Israelites through his prophets. Only a fool would have denied it. So God issued a challenge through this question, calling for evidence from the other gods to prove their own reality and worth. This is clearly rhetorical since God already knew they could not. God asked that if anyone were like him, they should come forward to make their case Once again, he appealed to the fact that he had established Israel as his people. The Lord had provided for this people and foretold their path. If other gods were to rival him, then they should be able to declare a different path and outcome. But of course, they could not. God then reassured his people, Though God had laid down the challenge, there was no rivals who could possibly take it up and wrestle with the Lord for control or supremacy. His people whom he had formed and informed for ages were secure in his strong and gracious hand. God also reminded the Israelites that they were his witnesses. They had seen his acts and works and knew he is the one true God. The Lord then stated that he is the rock and that he knows no other. This wasn't a statement leaving open the possibility of another rock, but a definitive declaration that there aren't any others since this one God is all-knowing. That the Lord is the only rock is important for the verses that follow. Rocks do not rot or decay, and they cannot be heated and molded. There is only one rock that people can hold on to and stand upon for their hope and salvation. The focus of Isaiah's prophetic word then shifts from who God is to who the idol makers were. They were nothing. It's clear that God does not see idol makers as simply confused people who get a little lost along the way. Rather, these people are directly denying who the real God is. Every part of idol-making is empty and shameful. The idols that the makers create cannot do anything. Therefore, in contrast to the witnesses of the Lord Almighty, who have seen his great works and heard his word and law, the witnesses for the false gods cannot see and cannot know because there is nothing to see and, I, and know from their idols. Their religion and their gods are empty so they are put to shame. God then asks another rhetorical question. Who makes a God that benefits no one? This is the most foolish thing ever. There's no point to it at all, since an idol can do nothing. So those who worship these useless idols will be put to shame. Why? Because the craftsmen are humans. The implication here is that a true God cannot be created by human hands. The Lord is eternal with no beginning and no end, the first and the last. Idolaters, those who make idols and those who worship them when they stand to face judgment, they will be startled and for the third time put to shame because they worshipped a man-made God. The Lord will not tolerate worship of something other than himself let alone something so useless as an idol. Humiliation and shame will result for those who put their hope in a man-made creation, rather than the true God of Israel. Unlike God's chosen people, his faithful witnesses who are commanded not to be afraid, those who follow idols should be very afraid. But thanks be to God that because of Christ, God provides a way for forgiveness and salvation for all who have followed idols. He calls us to repentance and draws us back to him that we may find freedom and purpose in Christ alone. Realizing that our idols will not only lead us, will only lead us astray. The third point is that idolatry results in foolishness. We find this in Isaiah, chapter 44, verses 12 through 20. The iron worker labors over the coals, shapes the idol with hammers, and works it with his strong arm. Also, he grows hungry, and his strength fails. He doesn't drink water, and is faint. The woodworker stretches out a measuring line. He outlines it with a stylus. He shapes it with chisels and outlines it with a compass. He makes it according to a human form, like a beautiful person to dwell in a temple. He cuts down cedars for his use, or takes a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel, and the rain makes it grow. A person can use it for fuel. He takes some of it and warms himself. Also, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worship it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. He burns half of it in a fire, and he roasts meat on that half. He eats eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the blaze." He makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it. Save me, for you are my God. Such people do not comprehend and cannot understand, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their minds so they cannot understand. No one comes to his senses. No one has the perception or insight to say, I burned half of it in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and ate. Should I make something detestable with the rest of it? Should I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. His deceived mind has led him astray and he cannot rescue himself or say, isn't there a lie in my right hand? In contrast to God, our uncreated eternal solid rock Idols often were crafted using two different mediums. First, the iron worker works over the coals. Iron is a very strong metal, yet a skilled worker can still mold it and shape it according to his will with heat. The man uses tools and uses the strength of his body to form these idols. Yet the worker is human, which means he cannot keep making idols forever. He needs food and water, and if he doesn't fuel his body, he suffers and cannot finish his work. Second, the woodworker shapes a felled tree. The woodworker's tools are a measuring line, a stylus, a chisel, and a compass. Each of these is a man-made tool used to create and achieve accuracy in a work of human initiative. Additionally, the model for the wooden idol is another human being. Every aspect of the idol's creation is steeped in humanity. There's nothing divine about it. Next, we see the utter foolishness of worshipping a piece of wood on full display. The woodworker plants and cuts down a tree that he burns and ultimately destroys his fuel for a fire to warm himself and to bake bread to feed himself. The carpenter burns one half of a log and reduces it to ashes. Yet with the other half, he crafts an idol, and he worships it, praying to it, to save him. Isaiah is implying that this defies common sense. How can something you burn as fuel, fuel for a fire in order to cook your supper ever save you? How can a man simultaneously use wood in service to him and then bow down in service to it. Everyone should be able to see how foolish it is to trust in something crafted by human hands for salvation. But we can look around and see that such knowledge is hard to come by. Jeroboam knowingly set up golden calves to complete, compete with the true worship of Yahweh. Ahab brought in the worship of foreign idols. That involves self-harm and prostitution. Every day we human beings are guilty of subverting our rightful relationship with our Creator by seeking joy and satisfaction in what we have created for what He has created. This is short-sighted and foolish. Because of the hardness of their hearts, the idol worshipers Isaiah was addressing continue to be unable to see or know anything. This repeats the language from verse 9, but here God is the one who shuts their eyes and shuts down down their minds. By faith in God and his word, we must hold in our attention our understanding of free will and God's sovereignty. God is in control of all things. Yet we also know that we are responsible for the choices that we make. Verses 19 and 20 are the peak demonstration of the foolish worship of idols. And this indicates to us us all, no one is able to see how foolish it is to use half a block of wood for burning to heat food and the other half to make a detestable idol. Being dead in our sins, we cannot come to our senses and rescue ourselves from this self-imposed trap. He feeds on ashes, paints a vivid picture of the stupidity, foolishness, and senselessness of worshiping idols, and not the Lord Almighty. Not only is idolatry purposeless, it also leads to death. This is the state of all humanity. This is us, made to worship the one who is true and great, but self-deceived to worship What is a lie, and lesser, or worse, nothing at all. The Lord is the only true God. He was not created by human hands. He has always been, and always will be, to worship a hand-carved idol that cannot see or know anything instead of the God who sees and knows everything, is just simply foolish. Yet God still calls idolaters To himself and longs for them to recognize who he is, the only true God who loves people, is compassionate toward them. And he can deliver them from sin, shame, and death. The foolish chains of idolatry are broken only in Jesus, and they may heed the call to trust in Christ and the warning to flee from idolatry. I want to close this lesson today with a voice from church history. Athanasius, who died in 373, wrote, How could he fail to pity them in this also, seeing that they worship them that cannot see, and hearing they pray to them that cannot hear, born with life and reason, people, as they are they are called God, the things that do not move at all, but do not even have life. Strangest of all, do they serve as their masters, being who they themselves keep under their own power? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, and we just pray that you would open our eyes to the idols in our lives, and that you would help us to overcome our worship of these meaningful, meaningless dead gods, and that we would focus our eyes upon you, And then, Lord, I just ask for you to be with those who are sick and hurting today, that we just send your Holy Spirit to comfort them and raise them up. And, Lord, I thank you for the gift of life and health, and I pray, Lord, that you would just guide and direct us in the coming week and send your Holy Spirit to illuminate our path and show us who we should share your loving grace and the story of Jesus with. For it's in Jesus' precious name that I pray, amen.